Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. For this episode of the Bully Pulpit Podcast, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Rabbi Mike Cummins. Rabbi Cummins is the founder of Torah Trek Spiritual Wilderness Adventures and the Institute for Jewish Wilderness Spirituality. He's the author of A Wild Faith, Jewish Ways into Wilderness, Wilderness Ways into Judaism, which came out from Jewish Lights in 2007. He also developed and produced an outstanding online course called Making Prayer Real as a way into the often impenetrable and foreign-feeling Jewish liturgy. Making Prayer Real also came out in 2010 as a book from Jewish Lights. Rabbi Cummins, thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you. Great to be here, and thank you so much. So I want to start off with the fact that you've lived in Israel. In fact, you were living there for 15 years. And knowing you as I do and looking at your bio, it seems as though your experience there charted your rabbinate, uh, even though you didn't work just as a rabbi in Israel. Is that an accurate uh, understanding of how you've uh, emerged? Absolutely. When you go through the Israeli rabbinical program, it's uh, quite different from the American one, as you know, and it leaves its imprint. Definitely. Not to mention living 15 years in Israel. What was it about the Israeli experience or what uh, part of your career there um, has been so formative in your rabbinate? I was blessed to be one of the founders of Kilat Kol Neshama in Jerusalem with uh, Rabbi Levi Wyman Kelman. And that is just one of the great places to daven in the Western world, one of the uh, great reform synagogues. And so I learned a tremendous amount. Also, just living in Jerusalem for as long as I did, both in the uh, traditional Orthodox community as well as the liberal community, all of which um, really gave me depth and background into our tradition. Lots of great places to explore. And being Reform and a little bit out of the, out of the box, I became an Israeli desert guide while I was there, spent one of my most memorable Rosh Hashanahs in the mountains outside of Eilat. The experience of the land together with the intellectual experience at Hebrew University and Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem was exceptional. I'm very grateful. So there's going to be some fodder there for us to think about some of the motivations behind making prayer real, I think. I'll, I'll, we'll, get, we'll get there in a minute. With respect to making prayer real, I noticed that you bill the online course, Making Prayer Real, with the tagline, Discover the Art of Prayer. It seems that one of your innovations is to foreground the emotional connection prior to foregrounding or tackling, as it were, the intellectual and textual basis for prayer. Is that is that right? Exactly. And that required a, a lot of unlearning because, like most of us, I first went into prayer through the head when we talked about it. The experience of prayer, of course, was emotional, but we didn't talk about that enough. And what I hope to, when I say we, I mean in my classes in rabbinical school, I mean in my experience of growing up in the reform movement, but my most meaningful prayer experiences were at Camp Swig in California as a a teenager. That put me on this path. So I would say that what I'm trying to do in the course is to recapture that and look at what are the emotional foundations of prayer? How do we build on them? How do I connect heart to words? That's one of the, the major thrusts of the program. So now I want to go back to Israel because I would guess, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this if I'm missing it or if I'm, if I'm landing on something here, but I would guess that as you participate in the Jewish journey with Israelis who are having 
a different set of challenges and opportunities with respect to cracking open prayer, that maybe maybe they're watching their experience, mapping it onto your own, is part of how you landed on this pedagogical approach of putting the heart before the head. Yeah, it just it wasn't it was it was it was mostly talking to people who weren't Jewish in the spiritual world that got me on this. When I think of Israelis, mainstream Israelis, coming to Judaism, I think of all kinds of things, a certain reticence, but I also associate it with uh, Israeli Jews coming to terms with their uh, spiritual search and choosing to look to Judaism rather than associating politics or, or religious politics with Judaism as a religion. And so I was just wondering if you, in seeing that, if that opened your eyes to a different entryway into Jewish prayer than most American Jews may have, or maybe not. And that's sort of where the curiosity of mine is. Interestingly enough, because I was the director of the Bar Mitzvah program at at Kol where I was dealing with many families who really had no religious experience beforehand or very limited experience. They are so different than the Orthodox people that you're used to seeing praying all the time. For those folks, they I found that they were learning from us, that one of the really difficult problems Israelis have is they understand the language. They literally look at the words on the page and say often to themselves, how can I say that? And they don't have the experience of a language that's not their spoken language that that takes them in a kind of mystical way to a place that they don't get to, that they get to through a trance band or, or, or you know, singing in French. So I found that, that those families needed to get over what their heads were telling them in order to open themselves up to the experience of the music and the and the, the associations that come with praying the prayers of Dabini. As far as Orthodox Jews go, yes, I was really impressed by the discipline, by the uh, fervor. But I have to say that in the end, I was not won over by it. I found that the more I prayed traditionally, the less I connected to God. And the reason was is that people were not taking the time to connect their hearts to the words. They were just going through it really quickly, as you have to do if you're going to daven three times a day. So I find that in the traditional world, find, finding people that actually deal with what we deal with in the Making Prayer Real course of looking at prayer not as, as an ethnic and historical and, and a communal connection, but as a, as a vehicle to get to God. Most Israelis, are, most Orthodox people, are, I find in America too, are just as perplexed as, as liberals are. Yeah, I can see that. And I know for a fact what that feels like because you desperately and very politely tried to interview me for making prayer real and uh, my my own disconnects were were ultimately prohibitive and that was a lesson in and of itself so having seen some of of the actual interviews that did make it and the really beautiful interviews and comments not to mention the depth i want to ask if you're willing i I know you can't uh, you know choose a favorite child but if you're willing to, to share an anecdote, if you will, around one of the interviews or a fragment of an interview that has resonated with audiences, as far as you can tell, in doing the work that Making Prayer Real is really setting out to do, which is to connect, as you said, the words to the heart. Is there, is there, some, is, is there a particularly resonant part of Making Prayer Real to which you can refer and describe? 
Well, I certainly can refer to the one that moved me uh, the most, and you know, most in, in quotes, because I learned so much from the people yeah. that I interviewed over over seventy between the book and the and the curriculum. Ari Ben David, who grew up Reform but became a real black hat Baal Tshuva uh, in Jerusalem and was a teacher at Pardes, where I studied for four years, a yeshiva in Jerusalem. I thought of as, you know, the real standard Orthodox guy. You know, you, I'm supposed to say this three times a day, and I'm also a rabbi, so I'll tell you that I love it. And he is just such a breath of fresh air. He said, you know, I did that for a number of years, and then I realized that it just isn't happening. And he came out and said that out loud. He said it tried to do something about it. So he said, I tried, I taught the Sidur for a year. And he said that helped a little. But then he said, I just put the book down, and I started to look in my heart and just verbalize what I needed to say to God. And he said, praying to God, and remember that this is where being Orthodox helps, but in a, having a belief in a personal God, that because I always knew God was listening and not judging. I couldn't even tell my wife some of the things that I could tell God. Have I failed a child? Am I depressed when I shouldn't be? Uh, other things that you can read in his essay on prayer and, and making prayer real. And it, it, it so moved me and made me understand what the power of prayer is, which is that we can connect what's happening in our deepest selves to our deepest values to the world around us. It's, it's compelling. I mean, the truth is that the, the course is filled with, like you said, there's, a, there's so much in it. And, and one of the things I was really curious, because I'm curious about you as well, not just making prayer real, is, you know, I could, I can imagine 50 things that are comparably enriching. What in making prayer real left you, or maybe even still leaves you challenged? But I don't mean challenged in the benign way. I mean challenged in a way that may still be unresolved, or, or, or you, really, you really haven't quite landed there yet. Oh, prayer is an ongoing challenge. I didn't write this book because I thought I was good at prayer. <laughs> I wrote this book because I had a problem. I was a rabbi, and I wanted to be good at prayer like so many of us do, rabbis and not. Uh, in fact, when I, when I would interview people, they would say, send me a copy of the book. I said, it's coming out in a year. No, I can't wait a year. I want to hear what other people are saying because I need to, to know. I need to do something to improve my prayer practice. There are various challenges. Discipline is always a, a big one. And I think another challenge that we all face is knowing that is, is understanding and knowing how to work with prayer in different contexts. A Kabbalat Shabbat tefillah is not like a Shabbat morning tefillah in many respects. And if we, we, we need to know the difference so that we can work with it. Kabbalat Shabbat is not really about introspection. But if we have a prayer life that is all about communal singing and, and, and being joyous but doesn't deal with the difficult parts of our lives, that's not much of a prayer life either. I find that I'm attracted to all kinds of other spiritual practices, and, and since prayer is the hardest, it can be the hardest for me to motivate myself to do, even after all that I've learned and all that I've, for all that I love the practice. But I struggle on because I know how, how important it is to me. In fact, I'm, I'm less committed now to uh, traditional prayer and yet more committed to prayer. Along the lines of what you were saying before, not altogether shocking. If, if you embrace a certain reform perspective on evolution and both communally, historically, but also personally, it somehow makes sense to me. But you didn't really answer my question probably because I didn't actually answer, ask it properly. I get all those challenges and I get why making prayer real gets into the meat of those questions very beautifully, frankly. 
but I want something more uncomfortable for you. I mean, it, I want I want to hear something about making prayer real that you disagree with, or that you actually say, you know what, this is a problem. It's not not a problem like oh, something I have to improve, but a problem like ah, you know, I I was reticent about putting this in the course or something like that. All right, I'll tell you a part that didn't make it in the book. <laughs> I wanted to explain to people. Uh, the difficulties I have, so I talked about going to the bar mitzvah from hell. <laughs> Would you like to hear about it? Now I really want to, because I've heard about bar mitzvah uh, celebrations with pole dancers. So if you can beat that, I want to know. <laughs> well, what I mean by that is you go, you show up at a, a service at a synagogue you haven't been before. You're not familiar with all the music. Half the people there aren't Jewish. The other half don't seem to know the music either. Very few people there are regular prayers, prayers. Um, the rabbi's putting on a brave face. The cantor is, you know, forced to put on a solo performance because they don't have the group that can that can join in with them. The family hopefully wants to be there, but they're just, you know, that they're they're going to be really happy when the kid gets through the service, okay, and they can get on to the party. And I came to pray, and it's pushing all my buttons about what's wrong with the reform movement, and I could get so angry. And having to sit there and and watch through and, and and my empathy for the clergy on the on the bima, who are are smiling their way through through this service, that was a challenge that I learned to deal with. That I learned that what happens on the bima is not really what counts, and whether or not I'm going to pray well, or whether or not I'm going to get something out of this tefillah. It really does not depend on the rabbi. Doesn't depend on the cantor. Certainly doesn't depend on on the bar mitzvah kid. It depends on whether my heart, I can take my heart, whatever state it's in, and turn it into an open heart. And that's what we talk about in the book. Wherever you are, whatever the circumstance, if I'm going to sit down and pray, or if I'm going to stand and pray, the Jewish modality, what do I do to prepare my heart so that it will, it will be effective? And it doesn't, I don't, by that, I don't mean happy or joyous. I mean effective. I mean, is it going to help me be in touch with what's going on in my heart and then put it, that out to the transcendent? source of, of, of what goes on in my heart that I want to connect to. That evokes some of the themes of the previous part of our conversation about discipline, and you're talking about a kind of uh, a spiritual discipline that can find itself even in an adversarial context. An adversarial context made worse, the adversarial component of it being worse by virtue of it have supposed to be in the right context, and so that, that dissonance can actually double down the problem. But in Jewish terms, we can speak with great clarity about the vector of discipline and obligation and requirement and the vector of spiritual connection with God and appreciate that those two things are not always parallel or intersecting or what have you. To simplify the question, but allowing you to to jump off from it, is it our business to fulfill the obligation to pray even if our heart isn't in it? Yeah, see, I've changed on that. I would have answered yes, and now sometimes I think it can actually be more damaging. And I would, I have to say, in my personal prayer life and uh, in my life, in what I counsel people, um, you know, a moment of genuine prayer is worth an hour of wasting your time at prayer. So this cannot be a 100% black and white answer. I mean, there's no way you're going to uh, do prayer at all if you don't have some kind of discipline. There's no way that you're going to connect historically to our people. There's no way you're going to have your prayer opportunities and possibilities modeled for you if you don't learn our tradition. And there's all kinds of 
types of prayer that, that you can only do in a group and that only come through with a tradition. And those are very important and very powerful. So I think the goal is to find balance. And, you know, people don't like to hear this. You know, what do I mean by authentic prayer, genuine prayer? You know, how can you be so judgmental about something so mysterious? But I think that you, we do have to ask that. We, in whatever, whatever it is for each of us, we need to ask, you know, what is really prayer? And once we ask that question, the whole world of prayer opens up. And it's a very diverse and rich world, and there, there's a place for everybody in it. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. From anywhere in our tradition, what's your favorite blessing? Mm, wow, that's a hard question. I would say, praise be you who creates the, the wonders of creation, the wonders of the world. There's a number of nature prayers that I really love. I also have to say that I love Baruch Dayan Emet. That's a fascinating choice and a fascinating blessing in, in and of itself. So I get when the Torah Trek guy, my my rabbi, Mike Cubbins, comes and says, Maseh Breshit, I, can, I get why that evokes for you some of the best and the deepest that prayer can offer. But now let's let's uh, stipulate that and move on to Baruch Dayan HaMet, as you were about to say, the, the consolation blessing phrase that one says, when learning of death. Translate it first, and then tell us about it. Well, the meaning is, uh, praise P the Dayan, the judge, Amet, truth or faithful or loyal. Blessed be you, the true judge. And, and to think of that in association with hearing the news, you traditionally say this prayer when you hear that someone has died. So to say that prayer at that exact moment is itself entering into the mystery and giving depth to emotion. Because do I, do I believe literally about a God who judges me in, in a moment-by-moment basis? I, I do not. Uh, so, and yet, I find that those words are, express the yearnings of my heart right at that point. But here, here's the, the reason that it's a real favorite. And it's taken me, it took me about five years of practice to be able to say this automatically upon hearing that someone has passed away, which is the main time that it comes up. Most of the time when people have told me that someone's passed away, I've either said something really stupid or I've said something really banal. And I felt bad about it almost immediately or perhaps later, but rarely have I been able to get across what I want to get across to the person giving me that news that a loved one of theirs has passed away. When you say Baruch Dayana Met, you are saying something that has a cultural resonance that says something without me. It's like quoting Shakespeare as opposed to me trying to come up with my own words. And in that particular circumstance, it gets across the depth of emotion without me being trite. And if they're Jewish, you know, you know I only say this to people who are Jewish, then it's, it gives them the resonance uh, of all the tradition of, if they know this blessing, of people who've heard it. And if not, then I explain it to them. But the point is, when we say Kaddish, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the exact meaning of the words. It's what Kaddish means in our cultural context. If we actually knew what Kaddish says, we probably wouldn't say it. Exactly. 
So Baruch Diana Met for me is is the way of bringing all the experience of our people into this tender, sad, mysterious moment. It it seems to me that you're on the verge of saying because I don't, I mean I don't know who you hang out with, but in the reform movement, if you say Baruch uh, Diana Met or Diana Haemet the vast majority of the time, it will only be the resonance and none of the substance that is actually conveyed because they will hear Hebrew and it will have that power, that uh, like an amulet, the kind of power like the Kaddish has uh, without, without meaning pointedly because meaning is not a, point, a part of it. And if that's what you're saying, I get it. I certainly don't disagree. But now I want to get into the meaning because if you, if you understand it, it could easily be translated as, you know, God knows best. And in American pastoral contemporary culture, if you were to say that in English, you'd have a red splotch on your cheek, the exact shape and size of a hand. And it's, it's just interesting to me. That strikes, that strikes me as a problem, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I do agree with you that if you were to just have it be its literal meaning, as if you know the person who did not would not understand the cultural resonance, but they they also would not understand the Hebrew. So, I would have a chance to explain a little bit. But I agree with you that th- this is not the response I would give in a literal sense. What what I'm doing here is two things. One is that I am I'm solving a problem for myself. I am upset. I've I've, I, I want to deal with the fact this is the most transcendent and meaningful and terrible of moments. This is an awesome moment, and it's not to be treated lightly, and I don't know how to, to treat it properly with my own words. But the other side of it is that you know, if we're going to stay connected to our tradition, we have no choice but to interpret our tradition. We can say almost nothing literally in prayer, in our prayer book. So it's, so this becomes, and this is something we teach in the course and that we tackle in the book, this becomes a, a major lifetime project of the praying person. We have to come up with our own meanings and our own understandings of how we understand these prayers, knowing full well it's not the original intention of the author. So that's our work, and I would like to say that that's a big part of the difference between this kind of course and another kind of course, which is that traditionally in the reform world, uh, not that there's much of a tradition about this, but if I'm a rabbi, I'm concerned about what I'm going to do on the bima. I'm talking to my ritual committee about, or my worship committee about, and my cantor about what the music's going to be, and what the readings are going to be, and what the timing is going to be, and maybe even what the art in the synagogue is going to be. And of course, we fret a lot about the, the prayer book. My claim is that none of that is as powerful as what happens when a, when a person takes their own prayer life seriously. And this is a great example of it. From the Bema, I'm going to teach. You could interpret this prayer this way or that way. But a person who actually takes the time to learn that teaching, and not just that one, but many, and studies a class on prayer uh, with the rabbi and, and other teachers, that person's going to bring that lifetime of, of pondering the meaning of these words into the circumstances of my life. And that requires not just intellectual skill, but then it requires a poet's skill of not all these words are going to be literal. Not all these words are going to be linear. And do I also know the skill of unburdening my heart, of expressing my soul? Do I value that? Do I realize that if I do that, I'm going to have a, a higher quality of life? I'm going to be a better friend, a better spouse, a better member of my community. So that's the appeal we make to the, to the reader. We ask the first thing we ask in the book and in the course, who's responsible for your inner life? 
I think the course uh, does a wonderful job at it. And uh, Rabbi Mike Cummins, I want to thank you for spending the time and for the really rich conversation. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.